0: the horse and hound podcast hello and welcome to the horse and hound podcast i'm pippa room magazine editor here at horse and hound it's been a big week for me with my first trip out to a horse show since lockdown started and i hope everyone else is managing to start getting out and about too This week, our guest is Ian Stark, who has a wealth of wonderful stories, from being a party animal at championships to his early days and learning the hard
1: way. I used to get bucked off, spun round with, dumped, reared, you name it. It kind of taught me stickability and I absolutely loved it.
0: We'll also be chatting to our news team about the latest research around eventing safety and important developments in the area of jockeys' mental health. Finally, we'll hear from Vet Ricky Farr of Far & Percy Equine, who has invaluable advice on what to do if you'll find your horse has suffered a wound.
2: The only one major piece of advice that I would ever give to an owner is never underestimate a wound. So if you come across your horse and you spot it's got an abrasion or something like that, what do you do?
0: So with no further ado, buckle up your nose band and let's get started. I'm delighted to introduce our guest this week. He's a five-time Olympian, three-time badminton winner, and the winner of 18 senior championship medals. He is, of course, Ian Stark. Hello, Ian. Hello there. Ian, you feature in our Legends series in the magazine this week, where we learned that you didn't have a particularly conventional path into eventing as a career. Can you tell us a little about your background and how you actually started riding?
1: Yeah, basically, I I lived in the middle of uh, Gallows Hills, a small town in the Scottish Borders and um i'd always wanted to ride horses or ponies um but i would never really got the chance and then my sister went with all her chums um on a sunday afternoon went for a riding i'd like to say a riding lesson but it was more like a trek and she did it for a couple of weeks and then she was kind of nervous and scared and so she wasn't going to go one sunday and so i said well i'll go with all of your girls friends and so yeah i was a 10 year old boy with about six a 13 year old girl. So I thought I'd sort of made it really. Absolutely loved it. I mean I remember being led up and down the drive and and a child not much older than me was leading the pony, shouting up down, up down, which I you know much, much later realized that was rising trot. Um, (laughs) and then then went out for an hour's ride and and we went off what I thought was a breakneck gallop and we took off. I mean it was actually just a steady canter, but I'd hardly ridden it. I mean that was my first time and so we charged right across a massive field and, and I remember being equally terrified and thrilled at the same time. And, um, and the fact that I got to the other end of the field and I was still on board, I thought, um, yeah, I quite like this. Um, so we went for an hour around the hill and seemed to gallop most of the way. And from then on, I was hooked. Sort of <laughs> so
0: you were literally just going cross country, basically, the first time you went out riding up and down banks and cantering across fields, which, which feels yeah. quite fitting <laughs> for your later it's career. A, well,
1: that's kind of, that's how I started. That's how I learned. So that's kind of my favourite part, you know, still galloping across fields and up and down hills. So.
0: And Ian, what happened next? How did you then move on and gain more riding experience?
1: Will Boyle was the chap who had the stables. And um, by the time I was 12, you know, I was getting put on anything and everything at um Rode all the horses, and you know I was kind of small and got stuck on these massive horses. And he provided horses for. We have these border common ridings, border festivals in every town, where hundreds of people go riding. And um, and we'd get truckloads of horses from Ireland. He had a connection in Ireland. He used to send them over. And at the end of the sum, after they'd done their summer's work, they were sold on. So every spring there was, you know, a truck arrived with eight new horses and ponies. And I was the one that got stuck on them all. And they were all supposed to be broken, but half of them weren't. Um, and I used to get bucked off, and spun round with, dumped, reared, um, you name it. Um, it kind of taught me stickability, but, and I absolutely loved it. And the, you know, the fact that I was battered and bruised half the time and was going into school um, on the Monday morning, hobbling along on one and a half legs, um, you know, it was part and parcel of it all. <laughs>
0: And then when you started you started working in an office and combining that with horses how did you manage to to do both?
1: Well um, I played at school until I was 18 only because I didn't really know what I wanted to do Um, and all it convinced me was that I didn't want to go off to uni or college Um, and especially the last year at school because I think I spent more time at the stables than I did at school. I left at 18 and I said that's it I'm, I'm I want to do horses but I didn't this is, this is terrible. It sounds, it sounds a bit arrogant and snooty, but it, it wasn't really. It was just I didn't want to go out and get a job and work for somebody and, and just muck out. In fact, I was mucking out for Will Boyle uh, most of my life. And um, quite often I was mucking out 10 horses uh, and then riding them all. And then he would come out at lunchtime and wonder how I was getting on. Um, but it, it, it was great. And then I, I thought, well, maybe I should be one of the great unemployed And I went to the the job center and and registered as unemployed and thinking, you know, they'll give me some money to live off whilst I'm playing on horses. And naive attitude um, and slightly arrogant, I suppose. Anyway, I got a a message after three days of being unemployed, um, being summoned in to see the manager. And I thought, yikes, I I haven't done anything wrong yet, I don't think, um, because they hadn't paid me anything. And I went in to see him and he sat me down and um, he said, can you write? And I. I said, yes. He threw a pad and a pen at me and he said, well, write something. And so I I just wrote a few lines and he said, okay, your handwriting is better than mine. You start here on Monday morning. And he looked at me because I was in my jeans and a pair of Wellington boots. And he said, and by the way, it's collar and tie and a suit, not (laughs) gumboots. So I ended up working in the office for 10 years. And uh, I did horses in the morning and at lunchtime and in the evenings. Um, and when Jenny and I were dating, we had to meet at lunchtime because that was the only time both of us were free. And it, um, so it was a bit of a shock to our system when we got married and we were actually around each other all the time. But uh, very quickly, as soon as we got married, Jenny said if, if she's getting married, she wants to have children. So we had two children within about a year. And um, then I decided to quit the office, which was a massive risk really, because I was suddenly giving up a salary and I was doing horses full time. Um, but within, I was 28 and within a few months of leaving the office, I was given Sir Watty and Oxford Blue from the owners and breeders. And two years later, I was in the Olympics. So it, it was kind of a whirlwind thing at the end.
0: Yeah, that was quite an incredible progression that once you did start to ride full time, you were really on a, on a fast track to, to the absolute top level. Can you tell us a little more, Ian, about those two horses who were sort of your first team horses and gave you those first team experiences, Sir Watty and Oxford Blue?
1: Yeah, um, so Watty, I, I rode originally when he was a four-year-old, because he was he was bred by uh, James G. Maxwell Scott and Susan lutyens and they had his mother, they shared her as a hunter, and she hunted three days a fortnight for God knows how many seasons, and then Watty was her first foal, and um, he was quarter Welsh cob and three-quarter thoroughbred. I went to ride him as a four-year-old, and thought he was quite nice, but didn't didn't do very much with him. And then the second time I rode him was in the indoor school at, at my mother-in-law's um, at Dryden Farm. And I got on him and I was nearly in the rafters. He bucked so high. Um, and I remember thinking then, well, if I can ride this horse, I think he's going to be really talented. Um, and then as a five-year-old, he came to me to compete for a few years, but I had to pay all the expenses for him. So um, suddenly I was no longer working in an office. I was no longer had the the income uh, from the salary, but um, I was spending a lot of money on him. And then as a six-year-old, Liz Davidson from Inverurie, who bred Oxford Blue, phoned me up and she said um, she'd sold the horse to Polly Ann Lahore, you know, Hugh and Alec Lahore's mother. Um, And Polly, I think, did a little bit of eventing with him first, tiny bit at at novice. We didn't have pre-novice and and anything lower in those days. Um, And she said, Polly wants to sell... Oxford Blue, if I buy him back, will you ride him? And so she bought him back and he came to me at six. And so I started doing novices on the two of them at six year old and they were at Bramham as seven year olds. And then Sir Wattie won Bramham, Oxford Blue was third. So that really gave me you know, the, the hunger to do more. Um, and then I took Sir Wattie to Axelstrang in Germany in the autumn and he was second. And then I took Oxford Blue to Buccalo and he was seventh and I was in the British team there um, and we won. So it was thrilling. And then I was put on the long list for the Olympics and my wife and I, Jenny, and I thought, you know, that's jolly nice of them to think about us, but um, we just sort of laughed about it when the letter came in. And then I went to badminton and Oxford Blue actually was the better horse there. He was third and Sir Watty was sixth. Um, and then I was put on the shortlist for the Olympics. And I distinctly remember Hugh Thomas, telling me at the final trial that, you know, you might as well sell Sir Wattie because um, you'll, you'll never be on a team with that horse. Because they didn't think very much of him. Um, and I said to Hugh, you know, I think you've got it wrong. I think he's actually the better horse. And uh, to be fair, when Wattie won his first badminton in 86, Hugh was the first person to come up to me and said, you always said it was, and, and congratulations. Um, uh, but the thing was, when I took Sir Wattie to badminton, he was on uh, Dr. Blue as an eight-year-old, Wattie was my first ride and I really didn't have a clue what I was doing and everyone just said, you know, kick and kick harder if you're scared. Um, <laughs> and so I wasn't intimidated. I, got, I went there and I thought, well, this is just another competition and I think my horses are capable of jumping around here. But I did make quite a few mistakes on Sir Wattie and he saved my neck two or three times. Once he was right down on his tummy and his nose, And he picked himself up and kept going. And then I got onto Oxford Blue much later and I'd learned so much on sorority that I was able to help Oxford Blue a bit more. Um, And so, you know, they both ended clear inside the time. Um, And I just thought it was kind of another day at the office and absolutely loved it. I I told my wife when we we were getting married, I said, you know, my aim is to get to Badminton. And then after a few years, she said, I knew you wanted to get to Badminton, but I had no idea you wanted to get there every year with two horses so, um but she's been a rock you know she's without her i couldn't have done it really
0: and so interesting Ian, that sawati was the horse who was sort of helping and teaching you even though you thought he was the more talented horse but it ended up that oxford blue looked better because you were able to give him a little more help but both those horses ended up being olympic horses oxford blue in 84 and sawati in 88 and you rode at five olympics in total did you have a favorite olympics of the ones you rode at which would be your fondest memory
1: I think, from a competition point of view um so korea was was the favorite he was with sir watti and and you know he 's kind of been my favorite all along um, he wasn 't the most talented horse in the world, but he the bigger the crowd, the better he performed and and he was as much as a show off as I was, and uh we loved the pressure and and we got on well together. But I mean, he was a, he was a funny horse though, because he, he could buck like the blazes. But he, you know, when he thought he didn't understand something, he would just trot, you know, in water at badminton or in the Olympics. He just trotted. It wasn't my call. He just did it. And he said, well, if we do this, I've got time to assess it. And he was very, very intelligent. Um, he didn't have the best jump in the world. He didn't have the best movement. He was certainly not the fastest, but he was the biggest tryer ever. So he really has a special place in my heart. But um I think Seoul was my favorite because I got two silver medals and I was very close to, you know, to, to getting the gold one. And then sadly, I'd given up by the time London came along, but um, I'm sure that would have been the best. And I'm, I was there commentating for the BBC with Mike Tucker. So, so um, I had the best of all worlds, really.
0: Yeah, that's a special Olympic memory as well. And talking of entertainment, Ian, all the other riders who we spoke to for the Legends feature said that you were a brilliant team player and always helped everyone to pull in the same direction, but also that you were always the party animal and you were always up for, for having some fun or going off and trying another activity despite being in the middle of a serious competition. I think you're going to have to share a wild story with us. Do you have a, a particular memory of a, of a party at a championship?
1: <laughs> well, there's, there's two memories. Uh, one of them was at Gawler in Australia the World Championships in 1986, and the competition was all over, but we did win team gold. And I seem to remember hanging from the top of the very large marquee, having climbed up the pole, from one of the country's flags, and the flag ripping, and it lowered me right to the ground. But I was just a little bit affected by the alcohol, so I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and... Um, And it was thrilling, and I thought it was great. But the next day, when I got on the plane to fly home, my hands were covered in splinters um, from the (laughs) poles that I'd been sliding up and down. And so I spent the entire flight home from Australia and picking out all this wood from my hands. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, I do remember partying pretty wildly there. Um, And the other thing was, again in, in Australia, we went off water skiing, and I had, I, think, I don't think I would water skied before. Um, and so we went with the, with the Kiwis and Mark Todd was there and he was driving the boat and we were on the Murray River and Lorna Clark and Jenny were on the, the bank and Toddie started to go down the river very, very fast. And the river wasn't that wide. And what I didn't realize he was doing was he was gonna go very fast and turn very fast. And I hung on as much as I could and just the sort of whiplash at the end when I should have been going back up the river. I took off. I was airborne. It was a bit like a skimming stone across the top of the water. So I sort of bounced off the water about six times and then fortunately I had a life jacket on because otherwise I think I'd have been at the bottom of the river. And Lorna Clark saw it happening and she knew what Toddy was up to. So she went running down the river and jumped into the river to rescue me. Um, but a couple of days later, I was in the dressage and It was all okay. <laughs> but, but Toddy and I still talk about that. It was—he um, thought it was hilarious. <laughs> it feels like the opposition
0: was trying to wipe you out before you even got started. But yeah, there um... was
1: always a bit of rival rivalry like that at competitions. But you know, it was—we um, were very serious and in, intent and intense rather um, when we were competing. But we did have fun. Um, I think eventing still brilliant. But we were. Lucky we had the long format, we still had the steeplechase and roads and tracks, and we had great fun with it, um, being selfish, I think we had the best of eventing. <laughs>
0: Ian, I think we could talk about a lot of these memories for, for hours and uh, we'll get you back on the podcast to talk about some more of them at a later date. But finally, I have to ask you made up for starting late in eventing by never seeming to quite retire, and you are still <laughs> eventing at the moment. I know you've got a couple of horses ended up to run in, in the latter part of this strange, strange season Hell or Wizard and Bowler Bill. Just tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I can't give up. I just can't stop it. And I, I, you know, I spend my time tar- all the time I'm home. I- I'm always buying young horses and I like to produce them and, and I sell them on, but, um, all the time I was competing, it was a thrill when you got a horse to the five, the, well, the four star then the five star now, it was a thrill and it was, it was exciting and, and it was a challenge the first time we got to that level. And I get just as excited taking, you know, a five-year-old to a, its first time B90. Um, it's, it's just as thrilling, but, um, I'm doing the novice on bowler bill and, um, uh, a lady called Sally Williamson, who I bought Stanic Ghost from a million years ago, um, rang me up at, just before Christmas. And she said, I've just been backed off a four-year-old and I've got quite a lot of broken ribs. Um, can you take two young horses to school for me? And Jenny was there and she was listening and she's, she's going, no, 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 we're not doing that. And I said, well, if you pay me cash, I'll do it. Because I was going skiing two weeks later and I thought, well, yeah, I could do with the cash to pay for my skiing guide. Um, so she said, Yeah, I'll pay you cash. And the two horses arrived, and one of them was Bowler Bill, and I I lunged him. I mean, he was he was off the track, he's a thoroughbred off the track. He'd run in three National Hand bumper races very badly, I think. And I thought, this is a horrible horse. And I got on it and I went, Oh no, no, this is not so horrible. And five days later I bought him. So that was 18 months ago, and he's having a go at his first novice. Um, on Saturday at Pascal. And he's he's lovely. I mean, he's not very big, he's only barely sixteen hands, but but he's very sharp, quick thinking, thoroughbred. Um sometimes he nearly dumps me because I'm not quite as sharp as him anymore. Um but it uh, but it keeps me young and I love it. Um and Hair Law Wizard is my son-in-law's horse that I sold him when he was a four-year-old. And uh, Ben hobday has been doing Badminton and Burley on him. And uh, when the pandemic started, uh, Wizard came back to Charles for the time being to, to have a rest or do whatever. And so I started riding him two or three times a week and schooling him just on the flat and the odd jump. And eventually I said to Charles, well, is he going back to Ben? And he said, well, there's, there's not really an event for him. So he's, I think he's going to be sort of saved till badminton next year. But And Ben had always said that, you know, he's a different horse to ride at the competition. So I rather stupidly said, I'd love to ride him in an OI. So um, saturday it is um so um i might look a complete idiot or i um, might look reasonably competent i have no idea but i'm really looking forward to and it's it's exciting excellent well
0: thank you so much Ian, and thank you for joining us on the podcast as i say definitely want to get you on again to talk about some more of the old time memories and uh, and also at some point to talk about your your course designing career but thank you so much for joining us today
1: okay thank you very much
0: So I'm joined this week by two of our news team. Firstly, our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. Hello, Lucy. Hello. And also joining us for the first time on the podcast is our news writer, Becky Murray. Hello and welcome, Becky. Hello, thank you. Becky, tell us what's been happening with you up in Scotland this week.
3: Well, I have had an invalid, um, one of my miniature Shetland's poppet. She decided to try and keep up with my big horses in the field. So she's had a bit of a sore leg and been on box rest. But she is getting there. The vets sort of checked her over and she got out at the weekend again and then she didn't catch. So I think she's definitely feeling a bit better now. I love the idea of you running around the field
0: chasing a miniature Shetland. (laughs) (laughs) And what about you, Lucy? What's happening with you?
4: Yes, uh, fairly quiet week for me. Um, So I rode in the rain all week and was quite looking forward to the fact the weather was cheering up this weekend. So obviously she lost a shoe on Saturday morning. Um, Typical horses. And other than that... I went to a pub for the first time uh, yes and true Brits we sat in the beer garden in the rain (laughs) it was nice to be out and it felt uh, quite normal which was which was a sort of a nice normality sort of sitting in the rain in in a pub beer garden so but Pippa you've had a much more exciting week you've been out to an event for the first time since lockdown Tell, tell us about that yeah, it was very exciting. I went to
0: Tweezledown last Friday reporting and it was amazing to be out. I could not stop grinning all day um, <laughs> while I was there. It just felt like I'd gone to sleep for four months and just woken up. The uh, The last time I went to an event was Tweezledown in March, which was actually the day they cancelled the event. So I was there for a couple of hours in the rain and then it was cancelled and um, went home and, and that was the last event I went to. So it really did feel like I'd sort of fallen asleep and, and woken up four months later, although in better weather. So it was a strange experience but a really good one
4: and did it all run smoothly and things what was it what was it like
0: yes it ran very smoothly um obviously an awful lot of effort has gone in by both british eventing and organizers um at tweezdown and also at the other events last weekend barbara and ask of planning and you know how it is with these things when something runs smoothly it's down to all the efforts that people have put in beforehand if uh, if things are frantic then it means probably there hasn't been the planning done but this really was a very very smooth day and um one of the things that was very strange was that there was no commentary. So under the new guidelines, commentary isn't essential. So it was it was very quiet and quite eerie.
4: How strange. And you mentioned there's been sort of some developments in the sort of commentary area, if that makes sense. Tell us tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so the organiser at Tweezerdown, Rachel Fultner, was telling me that Miranda Collett, who is a scorer who also runs the Eventing Scores website, has an idea of being able to run commentary through sort of a radio channel that you would access online and be able to then listen to through your phone so it might mean that you didn't have to have loudspeakers blaring at an event which can be quite tiring for people who are on site all day and can also upset horses but you could choose to listen to it through your phone if you were there as a spectator or you were walking the course and wanted to know where the problems are so I think that's a really interesting idea obviously I don't think we'll ever move away from having commentary at our biggest events and horses that are being produced up the levels to go to those events we need to get used to that yeah. and to having commentary but maybe uh, maybe at grassroots event we don't all need it blaring in our ears so I, I think that's a story we're going to be picking up on and, and looking at more this week. There's been a few
4: things haven't there which have come out of, of lockdown in terms of new technology for eventing we've had the new dressage test app we we're talking about last week and the cross-country fence judging app which is going to be trialled at Little Downham and do you think there's possibly some things here that could be potentially we're going to keep uh, was, as the
0: sport moves forwards. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. You know, you've mentioned those couple of apps for scoring and they weren't using those apps at Twizdam, but they were doing still speedy scoring in a different way. So for example, the fence judges, as they normally would, were reporting by radio, but there was a scorer sitting listening to that radio network and literally plugging those scores in from the radio network and, and time. So as horses came over the finish line, they pretty much had their cross country provisional scores and, normally our scoring is done from paper booklets and sheets that the fence judges write on and those were still being filled in but only being kept as a backup in case there was a discrepancy over what had been heard on the radio so that was another way of having super efficient speedy scoring which is brilliant and also another thing that a lot of people loved was having larger warm-ups so some of the events had maybe two show jumping warm-ups or one for flat work and then one for jumping in or just a massive area and extra jumps so that people could keep their distance more and that's such a good idea. you know, The show jumping warm up can be such a pressured part of the event. I think we all get a bit stressed when we're warming up for show jumping. I definitely do. So if you can have a bit more space and just take the
4: pressure out in
0: that way, I think that's something people would would be really
4: keen to keep. That sounds like the dream. I have to say that the thought of warming up almost fills me with possibly more um, anxiety than actually the event itself. As you're saying, show jumping warm ups can be quite fraught places at the best of times and warming up for dressage if you're thinking it's going to be a little bit short on space as well and you have sat on something fresh it sometimes can be a bit exciting so hopefully there's some positive things coming out of the rethink of eventing if that makes sense and we've heard from Eleanor this week as well she's had a positive experience at BS show hasn't she?
0: Yeah that's right so Eleanor hasn't been able to join us today on the podcast she's on holiday yes we do sometimes let our staff have holidays <laughs> at Horse and hand. but um, she went to a BS show competing last weekend and she also had a really positive experience she liked being given a set time it meant that she was at the show for a lot less time hanging around and not knowing when the class would start and also there was uh, a steward provided to do the warm-up jumps which for someone competing on their own was the absolute dream so
4: yeah lots of positive experiences. Brilliant it all sounds great and sort of encouraging me to possibly get my act together and get out again sooner rather than later this season so thanks very much for telling us all about that Pippa and what else we're going to be talking about today so next on our agenda is a story that Becky's been working on this week which is about
0: a new eventing safety study Becky can you tell us what this is all about Of
3: course. This research, um, very interesting. It looked at rotational falls in cross-country from a physics-based perspective. Um, It was an important piece of work carried out by the University of Kentucky. A PhD student there, Shannon Wood, um, was under the supervision of Dr Suzanne Smith, who's very experienced in this field and been involved in this research since 2009. So the research used a computer-generated model similar to what is used in weather forecasting, which is quite cool, and the model created 10,000 different scenarios using factors that could lead to a rotational fall, so this sort of took into account different approach speeds or different angles and different fence types, rider positions, and they used measurements from real-life video recordings, so they looked at 400 different horse and rider combination videos.
0: That sounds really interesting and amazing that they use the same technology as is used in weather forecasting. Obviously, so many possibilities there as well. Where do you think the study might go in terms of leading to sort of practical developments on the ground in eventing?
3: I think what's really interesting is that it really kind of paves the way for new safety devices in addition to what we have already. So at present, we have the MIM clip, the frangible pin and the reverse pin. But now, because there's so many different types of fences and, you know, they can be approached differently, hopefully this research will allow more devices to be created in the future, which can only really be a good thing. Mm, that's
0: really interesting. Of course, the MIM clip is a, uh, a device that can be used on, on different types of fences, like it's used on tables and on corner fences. That's something that's already greater uh, as, as with the frangible pin, which has been around for a long time and the reverse frangible. But it'd be really interesting if we can get more frangible options for, uh, for different fences. And we know that frangibles are a really vital part of safety, but there's often some discussion about the penalties for knocking down frangibles, isn't the Becky? Currently, a pair receive a non-negotiable 11 penalties if break one. Did you talk about that with the researchers?
3: So yes, I spoke to the researchers on this. Um, Shannon said, of course, safety of horse and riders comes first, but she highlighted this research does show scenarios where frangibles would have been activated when the science shows a rotational fall would not have occurred. Now, Shannon said, there was a lot of discussion and mixed opinions shared by riders in terms of penalties, but there's no question around the importance of frangibles. But if there was more options available to course designers, could this then lead to less false activations in the future?
0: Mm, that's such an interesting one because, you know, we, we've had situations in the past under previous rules where if it could be shown that the frangible wasn't actually hit hard, the penalties could be taken away and that led to, to more disputes and discussions. So it's really hard to know what the right way to go with is that. And as you say, if we could avoid sort of false activations when the horses maybe only tap the fence, that would. Be the dream, and maybe having more different kinds of frangibles would would allow us to refine
3: that in some way. Exactly, I think it's really exciting the sort of possibilities. The research had really positive feedback from the FEI, BE and the United States Venting Association who part-funded it. So it's all looking really positive for the future. And I know Dr. Suzanne Smith, the supervisor, is hoping to look at more work in the future.
0: And looking at different areas as well, like I know that, that study, it was mentioned in your story that's in the magazine, that it looked at a rider position and where the rider might be and how that might influence whether a horse fell or not, which isn't something that's had a lot of work done on it in the future. And I thought that was fascinating.
3: Exactly. And I think the Dr. Suzanne Smith mentioned they've also not looked at um, the pushing force caused by horses' legs when they contact the fence as well. So it really, there's still so much that can be looked at.
0: Mm, and we're so lucky to have sort of scientists and researchers willing to work in our sport and, and bodies who are able to fund that research. So that's really interesting work. And, and we're looking forward to following as, as more frangible devices develop, develop around the globe in response to research. Thank you, Becky. No problem. Lucy, we're going to come back to you now and talk about mental health in riders, particularly in jockeys, which is such a hot topic at the moment. I know you've been speaking to a number of bodies about different schemes which are out there and looking at different studies into jockeys' mental health. What are the overriding themes that you've found?
4: Yes, this is something I've been looking at in quite a lot of detail for the past couple of weeks. And it was something I, I knew I wanted to write about and I knew I wanted to look at, but I wasn't quite sure where I was going when I started with it. And so I've spoken to a lot of people for this week's story. And the overriding theme seemed to be um, very much about normalising, as well as the proactive and preventative side when it comes to looking at mental health. Because we know there's so much good work going on out there already and the reactive side uh, to issues is, is very strong in in racing there's 24-hour helplines there's huge amounts of support and and brilliant websites out there for people who are in a position where they feel they can and i know that isn't everyone but in a place where they want to access help they can get it but this is much more sort of looking at the areas of how to prevent issues from occurring in the first place, where that help can be targeted, and at what points that can happen and have the best and most positive impact. So it's been really, really interesting, actually, and really positive in the wake of something so awful, as as we've been writing about in the past few weeks, but to hear about what is happening. And there is that real desire for change, but not just the desire for change, there is actual change happening, which is which is really good to hear about positive stuff and and obviously lockdown has been a weird
0: time for a lot of people across all industries I know that you know personally my mood's been quite up and down and and all over the place in in strange ways at times and how has that impacted
4: on on jockeys? So this is interesting so this is something that I hadn't predicted in any way was going to come out of some of the conversations I was having. Um, Obviously racing was one of the very very first sports to restart and to do that it had to have a big rethink about how it was going to keep everyone safe and there's been some quite strangely positive knock-on impacts from that so one of those was restricting jockeys riding at one meeting a day so quite often jockeys will find themselves riding at one meeting in the day in the afternoon and then hot footing it to another meeting in the evening and obviously that is quite stressful for, for a lot of reasons and that will play on your mind as to how you're going to get there what your rides are going to be like on The first course you're at and then obviously the stress of thinking if things are going to overrun and traffic and making it to the next meeting. And not only that, that's a very, very long day. So that has had a really positive feedback. Um, Paul Struthers from the Professional Jockeys Association and Dr. Jerry Hill both told me that they've had very positive feedback for jockeys um, surrounding that. Paul told me quite a nice anecdote as well. He said that he saw someone's name flashing up on his phone and he thought oh goodness I know what meetings are on today and that they're going to have been passing a race course on their way home from one that they could have ridden at and the call that he had was actually them saying how they were relieved to be going home and that they were going to be having dinner with their family at six forty-five, and they were going to see their kids before you know bedtime and and actually that has is potentially possibly a, a change I think that might knock on and there's been a couple of other things as well that have been interesting um no saunas mean there's an extra three pound weight allowance and dr hill said that riders have found that with a little bit less pressure for some riders to make the weight um, they're finding they're less dehydrated and feeling better and also as well the cl- closed top food canteens means that uh, salads and sandwiches and healthier options are now there rather than a choice so there's been some interesting interesting positives potentially to come out of of lockdown. Mm, Just that pressure being off a
0: little bit and not having to Mm. to dash about so much has been a a real positive. Do you think the industry might consider making some of those changes permanent to help with jockeys well-being?
4: Possibly it's something they've been considering for a while but with lockdown it was a sort of forced action they didn't have a choice um, in terms of bringing them in. But I mean, this is all speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if the one meeting a day rule actually doesn't go away. But again, that's all pure speculation. But it's interesting to hear how well received it was, not just well received by the industry, but by people saying that they felt better because of it. I think that's quite strong, quite powerful there. Mm. And there's been a real push for the industry to work together
0: with, with sport coming back and with racing being one of the first the first sports to come back as well, hasn't there?
4: Absolutely. Yes. And in order for that to happen, as we know in eventing and all the other sports as well, in order for them to, like you were saying at the beginning, Pippa, with Twizzle down running so smoothly, it was wasn't just a coincidence. It was because there's so much work that's gone in beforehand to make it run smoothly. And Dr. Hill said that, again, this time has been, he's never known the industry work together in quite such a powerful way. And there's working groups as well going on with mental health um, in terms of the BHA and the Professional Jockeys Association and the Indian Jockeys Fund are all working together on that but sort of as a wider sense as well he said that if if the industry can you know sort of channel that focus that they've had and getting racing back on and working so well together into even a fraction of that into support and and looking at mental health as a whole then the the difference it's going to make is could potentially be huge so yeah interesting
0: great thank you Lucy that's obviously an area where a lot of work is being done and there's a lot more to do and we'll be keeping abreast of it all and talking about it again in the future I'm sure thank you very much for joining us today and to you too Becky and I'm sure we'll be talking to both of you soon bye bye so we're going to talk about wounds now and vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine, is here with all the advice on what to do if your horse suffers an injury
2: Wounds. Um, It's one of those things that, if you have a horse for long enough, you're definitely going to see quite a few of them. Um, Hopefully you'll only see a few scrapes, but uh, sometimes you do come down and find horses do some of the daftest things. Uh, They'll run through fences, uh, they'll run through doors, they'll get themselves tangled up in things. Uh, They seem to have a, a, a bit of a magnet for cattle grids and things like that. We don't want to see any of those things, but it's important that you are just aware of how to kind of manage a wound. So if you come across your horse and you spot it's got an abrasion or something like that, what do you do? The only one major piece of advice that I would ever give to an owner is never underestimate a wound, ever. It could appear small. It could appear literally insignificant to yourself. However, if you do have a wound over anything such as a joint or over a a tendon or anything like that, please be really, really cautious with it. And I would prefer someone to call me out and say, got a wound. Do you mind having a look at it and go, no, it's absolutely fine. Rather than being called out three, four days later to find that a wound has been gone into a joint and then requires surgery. So when it comes to assessing wounds, again, avoid all wounds or call your vet straight away if you've got anything over a joint or you've got anything over a tendon or you've got excessive blood loss or you can't stem the hemorrhage. However, if you do, again, own horses, you're going to get cuts and scrapes all the time. So the key things are get that horse into an environment which is safe. Horses, when they are in pain or scared or anything like that can do some pretty daft things and probably put yourself or anyone else or themselves at risk. So get them into an area where you can assess the wound safely and and make sure they're well restrained as well. So make sure they've got a head collar or bridle on or there's someone else around while you're assessing that wound. Because if you do get a bit of a knock or a kick or anything like that, you need to have someone around to make sure that you're safe. So assessing that wound, seeing where about it is, again, calling of vet if it's over a joint or a tendon or excessive blood loss, but otherwise cleaning it. So uh, quite often we'll go out to people who have stood there for 10, 15, if not 20 minutes constantly with a hose pipe. Well, actually, probably it's not going to do that much good. What you need to do is make sure, yes, that wound is nice and clean. So do use a hose pipe, probably only use it for three, four minutes, washing that wound out and cleaning it away, getting rid of that debris as much as possible. Everyone or most yards have a tub of chlorohexidine or one of these hibby scrubs. So using those again, dilute them down and using those to clean the wound. Now keeping that wound sort of covered as well and just making sure that it. if you do have lots of grit or mud or anything like that, all that is removed out of it as much as possible before you do cover it over. Other wounds that you're going to commonly encounter are wounds um, over an eye. Um, Eye wounds or anything to do with eyes, I will categorically 100% say call your vet straight away. Uh, It's not one of those ones that you want to deal with on your own. Um, Losing an eye as a result of a simple ulcer is incredibly disappointing and not fair on that animal. So if you ever get a wound around an eye, call your vet. Send them a picture or do something. Just speak to someone professional to make sure that that's actually dealt with. That's a definite one that you you don't want to be dealing with on your own. Wounds that involve kicks or potential kicks, again, give them a degree of caution. Uh, They can look fairly insignificant, but commonly you can have fractures, splint bone fractures, all sorts of things like this that's Uh, will have longer-term consequences for that animal. So if you do have a kick wound, don't just allow that horse to gallop off down the middle of a field. Um, I can probably count two or three cases where it has happened in the past, unfortunately, where an owner said, yep, got kicked yesterday. Uh, Don't worry, it's still out in the field. And then you get called out, and sadly, it's had a hairline fracture. It's cantered up the field, and the whole lot has gone bang. They're the most disappointing cases to ever go out because you know exactly how that case is going to end so if you do have a kick wound get that horse in restrict it again call your vet foreign bodies Um, those of you who have ever uh, been in the hunting fraternity or or drag hunts or anything like that uh, or go out in the countryside and you're doing a bit of jumping over some of these hedges Uh, thorns we all know that the tip of a thorn looks really insignificant but it manages to find every single nook and cranny in the side of the front of a horse's knee so again if if you're worried that there is a potential foreign body within a wound again try not to poke it poking it in further is going to do a whole heap of worry so do call your vet out again get that properly assessed and i think it's probably just a common sense thing as well if your horse is excessively lame If it's lame and it's got a wound, chances are there's probably a little bit more going on. So again, get those assessed. See, uh, There are lots of types of wounds out there. Little abrasions, I think, are are very common for people to deal with themselves. Again, as long as it's not over a joint or a tendon. Um, Punctures, again, I'd be really cautious with. And again, if you see any wounds that have clear edges to them, so they're almost like incision kind of um, cuts. You don't get these with barbed wire, those serrate tissue and everything. They're a bit of a mess to kind of clean up, but those ones with clean cuts, again, they're the ones that are ideal to kind of stitch as long as they're not heavily contaminated. So calling your vet up, but trying to do this as soon as possible. Wounds kind of dealt with uh, in the first sort of four to six hours are much easier to manage. And that wound's left for two or three days. Usually they're contaminated, you have infection, you have so much inflammation going on you end up with secondary problems so just try and get things done nice and early and i've covered this in a, in another podcast also making sure that your horse is covered for tetanus again it's those little wounds puncture wounds things that look insignificant a quick little vaccine cover for tetanus but again i think my biggest biggest piece of advice is never ever underestimate a wound if you're at all worried just call your vet call a professional get them out to have a little look and get it sorted earlier
0: Thanks, Ricky. And that's all we've got time for today on the Horse and Hound podcast. But we'll be back next week when Ricky will be giving us the full rundown on pre-purchase vettings. We'll also be speaking to seven-time Olympian Andrew Hoy about his experiences at games from Los Angeles to London. And of course, catching up on the latest news with the Horse and Hound team. Until then, goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.